Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with the man who was a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Our Lord, our Father, as we spend time in your word this morning, I ask for your Spirit's help. This is not a human book read with human eyes. There is a spiritual deepness to these words that can transform hearts and lives. It is possible to read these in the flesh. It's possible to hear a story and be entertained by it. But it won't change our lives if your spirit does not work in us, if he does not shine light into our hearts. We are, as Gary read that prayer this morning, we are so blind in the midst of so much light. Even we who are your children, who know the truth, so often are dull to it. And you seem distant and far off. We want to see things with our eyes, and faith, the eyes of faith, are often dim. So we come here this morning asking for supernatural help and understanding. We pray that you would be glorified through the speaking of your word, and we would be edified and built up, and that all the praise would go to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I began by reading the story of Zacchaeus, but we're not going to spend our time in the New Testament. We're going to go hit the rewind button and go back to Genesis. I want to do that because we'll realize that although Jesus came to earth to seek and save the lost, he's been doing that ever since the beginning. It is his nature to seek and to save the lost, to go after lost sinners. Jesus said to Zacchaeus that that day, Zacchaeus became a true son of Abraham. And we're going to look at an experience today when a grandson of Abraham becomes a true son of Abraham. Because he was on the run, and God came to seek and to save him. And so, where we will be spending our time is in Genesis 28. But I want us to see the continuity, the consistency of God's character throughout the Scriptures. We divide our Bibles into Old and New Testaments, Old and New Covenants, but it's all one story, from the beginning to end. I want to consider the story of Jacob today, the famous, well-known story of, what we might say, the story of Jacob's ladder. In this, I want to see the fact that he is one of the Bible's many lost souls, and that ever since Adam and Eve fell, God has come looking for men and women. They sinned and hid, but God came looking. 
It is God's nature to bless those who do not deserve a blessing. Sometimes we can look at our lives and know that we are doing a pretty good job as being living the Christian life. Uh, we're in church on most Sundays, and we're uh, praying, and we're giving money to the offering, and doing these things that good Christians are supposed to do, and, and we may experience a blessing. And in our foolish pride, we can think that, well, this just, that's what's supposed to happen when you do things the right way. God's supposed to bless you. But God often turns that on its head. I don't know if it's true for you, but it's true for me. Many times in my life, in the times of my most spiritual coldness, when God seems the most furthest away, he still blesses me. And I wonder, why is that? And I think he does that so that we don't think it was because we earned it, because we serve a God who is gracious, not a God who gives us what we deserve. So we will see that today in the life of Jacob. This is a story that we're all familiar with, perhaps too familiar with. One of the tendencies for those of us who grew up in church is to hear stories when we're little and to hear them in Sunday school or from our parents and then to check that box in our mind like, I know that story, I've got that one down. But if we don't ever go back as adults, we don't ever go back to try to read with new eyes, we miss a lot of details. One of the tendencies we have is when we pick these stories up along the way as children, we often don't get the context. Sometimes we don't pick up the, the deep personal interactions that are going on because as a child you can't process a lot of these. You don't understand what it's like to go through these things. But if we read this with hungry eyes to see more from God's word and to appreciate more of what's going on, we, the, the depth of the scriptures never ceases to amaze us. And so when we are reading the story of, studying the story of Jacob today, I trust that we will see that with new eyes. The Bible paints a very realistic picture of the mess that sin brings. There are things that sometimes you wonder, how can I read this story to my children? But it's in the Bible, and I'm supposed to read the Bible to my children. There are some horrific scenes in the book of Judges. There's some grotesque things that happen in the book of Genesis. The Bible doesn't hide that from us. Sin is nasty, and it leaves scars in relationships that can last more than a generation. And Scripture puts that in there so that we can understand the damage that sin can bring and also the grace of God in contrast to that damage brought by sin. The more we see the depth of human depravity, the greater is the glory and the mercy of God. So let me read this text from Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your seed shall all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid 
and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Pretty standard story. Not a lot of amazing things are happening there. Of course, not all of us get that experience of going to bed one night and seeing, having this vision of a ladder up and down from the earth to heaven with angels walking up and down it and God standing at the top of it. But we're familiar with the story, so we're not shocked when we read that. But to really understand what's going on here, we have to know Jacob's past, because this doesn't just happen. This isn't just a random story that just we tell these stories in whatever order we want to tell them in. Let's see what we know about Jacob so far. Turn back to chapter 25. Up to this point in life, we are not given one good thing about Jacob. Jacob is a scoundrel up to this point. And the, the depth of his sin is, is, is shocking when we consider where he is by the time he reaches chapter 28. So we know the story. Isaac wanted a son, just like his father had wanted a son. And he didn't have to wait as long as his father had had to wait for a son. But he still waited a long time. He's 60 years old by the time that he gets twin sons, Esau and Jacob. But from the very beginning, there's something unusual about this story. Because it says in chapter 25, verse 21, the Lord, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Even before... Jacob is born, there's sort of a mark against him. He's fighting with his brother inside the womb. Now, Paul will say, at this point in life, they're still inside the womb. They've, now, they've not done good or evil. That's, that's in Romans 9. So we're not saying that Jacob is sinful because he's not even born yet. But there's still an early indication that there's going to be trouble in this man's life. He's in combat with his brother inside the womb. And this is the first glimpse we get of what kind of a person Jacob is. So he's struggling inside the womb, inside of Rebekah. And then the days come, chapter, verse 24. Her days are fulfilled for her to give birth. Indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means heel grabber or supplanter. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So he's struggling in the womb with his brother, and the first action he does outside the womb is grab his brother's heel. He's a, he's a climber. <laughs> he's a go-getter, and he'll get it however he wants to. And we know that an infant doesn't have a lot of cognizance, doesn't know what's going on, but still there's that sense in which there's something different about Jacob's personality. He's going to be a different kind of person, and so far the images that we're getting of Jacob are not good ones. He's grabbing his brother's heel. I'm sure there's a lot of other things that Scripture that, that Jacob did between now and his vision of God in chapter 28. 
But God tells a story a certain way because he wants us to get a certain message. God does not, I'm sure that not every, every thought of Jacob's heart was only evil continually from the birth until his encounter with God here in Bethel. But that's all that God records because I think God wants us to see that side of Jacob. He's a struggler in the womb. He's a heel grabber at birth. And then what happens after birth? The boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we're seeing a, a, a division, a fracture in the family. Jacob is not a man of the field. He's a mild man. He's a gentle man. He lives in the tents while his brother goes out and does all the work. He's just hanging out with mom back in the tent. So we see that even there's a little, another little mark against him that he's not maybe the most diligent of sons as he grows. Now, as Esau's out slaving in the fields for his father, working, Jacob cooks a stew, verse 29. And Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. That's why his name is called, that's where his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Thanks, brother, for working out in the field. I'll be glad to give you some stew. Now, that's not what Jacob says. Jacob takes advantage of the situation. He says, Sell me your birthright as of this day. Should have worked on Wall Street, right? He's a manipulator. He has no compassion for his brothers working in the field, no appreciation. He sees an opportunity and he takes it. He says, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What does this birthright mean to me? Now, we know from later events that Esau despises his birthright. Esau's got his own problems. But Jacob is not a loving, kind brother in this situation. He is a conniving, uh, manipulative person. And Jacob says, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, rose and went away. Then Esau despised his birthright. So then we fast forward a little bit. There's an encounter with Isaac that has with Abimelech. And we move to chapter 27. At this time, the boys are 40 years old. It says in the previous verse, the last verse of 26, Esau was 40 years old and took wives, Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and another man, his daughter, also a Hittite. And they were grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So we know if Esau's 40 and he has a twin brother named Jacob, that Jacob's 40. So did you realize that when this deception passage comes, when Isaac goes in and he's of old age and Jacob goes in and pretends to be his brother, he's not a little kid. He's a 40-year-old man at least when he does this. And he's still following the manipulative puppet strings that his mother puts him on. So Isaac is old, and his eyes are dim, and he cannot see. And he calls Esau his son, and he sends Esau out, and he says, go get your weapons, go get your quiver, go hunt some food for me. I like your, the food that you bring in from hunting. Now Rebekah was listening through the door, so to speak, when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt. But Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I have commanded you. Go to the flock and bring for me two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. 
Then you will take it to your father that he may eat, that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob says, Mom, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. That's deceptive. Is that what he says? That's not what he says. He says, Mom, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm smooth-skinned. Maybe Dad will touch me, and I'll look like a deceiver to him. Well, that's what you are. I'll th he'll think I'm a deceiver. Maybe I'll get cursed instead of blessed. He's not, in it. He's not concerned about, this is a lie. This is deceitful. This is stealing something from my brother. His only concerns are, I might get caught, and I might get cursed instead of blessed. But he obediently obeys his mother as a 40-year-old man, intentionally sinning to deceive his father. Not a strong leader by any means. This is the guy who's going to lead, be the father of the Israelite nation. This is, this is Jacob as a 40-year-old man. But his mother says, what kind of a mother is this? Let your curse be on me, my son. Just obey my voice and go get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. So Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her at the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father. He said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. He thinks his father's dying, and he goes and lies to him. Isaac said, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He said, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. He brings God in as a party to his crimes. The Lord your God, he made this food happen so fast, and that's how I got back so quick. You know, the deer was right there. I didn't have to get out of the field, and it was just right there. Just... I didn't have my arrow out of my quiver, and he just the deer just fell down. I don't know how it happened so fast. And Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you really are Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's, so he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son? He said, I am. Lie number two. He said, bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's game, so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near him, and ate, and brought him wine, and he drank. His father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. So Jacob came near and kissed him, almost like we might see Judas doing to Jesus a few years down the road. And he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. So may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you, and be nations bowed down to you. Be master over your brothers, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. And just as Isaac finishes blessing Jacob, Esau gets back with the real food. By which time, Isaac or Jacob has disappeared. He's got out the back door as Esau comes in the front. And Esau realizes the deception, and Isaac realizes the deception that has occurred. So now, verse 41, Esau hates Jacob because of the blessing that his father had blessed him. And he says, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But Rebekah, who seems to have her ears everywhere, she finds out what Esau's threats are, and she gets warning to Jacob. 
And she tells Jacob, and she says, my son, obey my voice. You obeyed it before, obey it again. Get up, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. You should remember, Haran is 500 miles away. That's like from here to Charlotte, North Carolina. Go stay with my brother for a few days. She knows this is not going to be a few days operation. This is a long-term commitment to get out of town. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until his anger turns away, and he forgets what you've done to him. Do you think Jacob Esau is ever going to forget what Jacob done to him? Then I will send and bring you from here. Why should I be of both of you in one day? And then so Rebecca goes and she lies to Isaac. And she says, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is manipulating Isaac to get him to send Jacob up to Haran for opposite reasons than Isaac thinks he's sending Jacob away. And so Isaac calls Jacob and sends him out on his journey. And he says, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of people and give you the blessing of Abraham, that to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, which is up in Syria, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. This is what we know about Jacob. This is when Jacob has his vision of the ladder that reaches from heaven to earth. Jacob's on the run for his life, a guilty, rotten, deceiving sinner. And he's probably, it's, he's, he's traveled about 50 miles to this point. Whether he did that in one or two days, we're not sure. How fast do you run when you're running for your life? I guess if you're running for your life, you could cover 50 miles in a day. But in any case, he comes to a place. Now, Moses doesn't name this place. He says the place. He'll name it later. But he leaves a bit of mystery in this story. Jacob goes out from Beersheba and goes toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, verse 11, and stayed there all night because the sun had set. What is Jacob doing? Jacob has left the promised land. God had called Abraham, come into this land and I will bless you. This will be the place of blessing. This is to be the place where you will receive the promises. The, the blessing was passed to, to Isaac. Isaac has lived in Beersheba. Beersheba has become a place of blessing for Isaac. In Beersheba, God had confirmed the covenant to Isaac. In Beersheba, God had given great prosperity to Isaac. In Beersheba, God had given prosperity and peace to Isaac. He had been warring with the neighboring tribes, but in Beersheba, he'd finally found peace. And this is the place that, Isaac, that Jacob has to run away from now because of his sin. He's leaving the land of blessing, cast out of the land because of his sin, as Adam had been because of his sin, on the run for his life. Adam couldn't go back to the garden. There was an angel with a flaming sword. Jacob can't come back. He has a brother with a sword out for his life. But he's not like Abel. Abel was killed because he was godly. Jacob's life's in danger because of his sin, because he's a deceiver and a cheat, and he's afraid of death from a brother. And he leaves with nothing. He will say later in chapter 32 that he said, I left this land with nothing but a staff in my hand. All the, all the blessings promised to Abraham, all the blessings promised to Isaac, Jacob's heading in the wrong direction, out of the land of promise, with only a stick in his hand and a pillow for his, a stone for his pillow. And he lays down in that place to sleep. And what kind of, you've been on the run, you're tired, you're exhausted, you travel 50 miles on foot. You get there and the sun goes down. What is the frame of your mind? What's, what's, what's going on in your mind? You're hearing every noise, every snap of a twig. Is that Esau? 
Is he after me? I know he's after me. Has he, has he caught up with me? I'm sure the news got out pretty quickly what Jacob had done and where he was headed. And the news was going to follow after him. Esau was going to be on the run after him. So he's probably laying there at night, heart, half, mind half awake, not sleeping well, not resting well, with a very guilty conscience. And he lays down in that place to sleep. And then he dreams. And he sees a ladder set up on the earth, a top reaching to heaven. Most likely it wasn't a ladder that he saw. It was probably those steps that you see on the side of ziggurats, the big pyramids that you see in the, the old drawings of Babylon, these pyramidal Tower of Babel-shaped pyramids. It was probably something like that. He's a stairway is more of the word rather than a ladder. He sees this stairway that goes up to heaven. His top reaches heaven. And on this stairway, there are angels going up and down it, symbolizing or communicating to us that there's, there's communication between earth and heaven. And at the top, he sees God standing at the top. What do you think Jacob's expecting to hear God speak to him from the top of this ladder? He's probably expecting to hear, your, your life's over. You've done it now. You've had 40 years of my mercy, and you've rejected it. You've turned your back too many times. I know where you are. Esau doesn't know where you are, but I do, and I'm out to get you. That's not what Jacob hears. Jacob hears from God. I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father. I am the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. If you want a picture of grace in anyone's life or in your own life, consider what's happening here in Jacob's life. It's exactly the opposite of what he's expecting to hear. God doesn't just say, you're rotten, I won't, I'll keep Esau from killing you. God says, I'm going to pour all the blessings I promised to Abraham, they're yours now, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you, and bring you back here, and you're going to spread out even further than Abraham was going to spread out. That's not what Jacob at all expected to hear. And he was afraid. He woke from his dream and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. See, to this point, Moses has not identified this location. He has said this place, the place, this place, but he's not revealed where this is. But we're about to find out that this is Bethel. This is a significant place. This is the, 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 the first place that I believe, if not the first and the second, this is the first place that Abraham builds an altar when he gets into Canaan. Jacob's grandfather had dealings with God in this spot, or very close to this spot. And then when Abraham had to go to Egypt, because there was famine in the land, that he came back out of Egypt, and he and Lot have their parting of the ways, that happens here at Bethel. There is rich covenantal and family history that has gone on on this spot. This is not just a random spot somewhere halfway between Beersheba and Haran. This is in a very specific spot. This is Bethel. This is the house of God that God chooses to interact with Jacob the sinner on the run. And so Jacob's response is, this is the house of God, which is the word Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob arose early in the morning, and he took a stone that he put on his head 
He stood it up as a pillar and anointed it. He doesn't have the materials to make an altar like Abraham did. He's not traveling with tents and camels and all these other things. But what he has, he says, I'm going to take all I've got. I got my stick and I got my pillow. But this is a place. This is a point. This is a place I will not forget. I am going to dedicate this place to be a place for the worship of the God of heaven. He makes an altar there. What little bit of an altar he can fabricate. He pours a little bit of oil on it and he calls the name of that place Bethel. And he made a vow and said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. So I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone that I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will surely give a tenth to you. What did Zacchaeus do? The repentant sinner. When Christ changed his heart, he said, if I've stolen anything from anybody, I pay it back fourfold. Zacchaeus was not the first cheat to be converted by Christ. He's not the first cheat. Paul says, if anyone stole, let him work, learn to work, laboring with his hands so he can give to those who need. When God restores, when God redeems a thief, and when God redeems a cheat, he turns them back on themselves, and they become givers rather than takers. This is what God does in the life of one who's been converted. So this is the experience. This is the fuller story of what's going on in Genesis 28. A man on the run for his life because of the wretched way he's lived. A man who brought God, the last time he spoke about God, the only record we have of him speaking about God is bringing God in on his deceit when he lies to his fathers. The Lord your God, Dad your, your God, he's the one that brought me the food. He's the one that helped me pull this wool over your eyes. So what happens? Does Jacob keep this vow? Does Jacob keep this vow? Yes, he does. Some people say this is a tentative vow, like Jacob saying, well, God, okay, I think you're real now. If you keep your end of the bargain, I'll keep my end of the bargain. I don't think, I think this is just the way he talked. I think he was fully convinced that God would now be his God. And he had the confidence that God would bless him. And God did bless him. We will see that. Jacob will go on to Haran and spend 20 years there laboring for two wives. Jacob's sin and, and disaster does not stop here. But at least he's on the right side of God now. At least he's on the right side of redemption. His sins from now on will be as a converted man. They will still be grievous sins. And they will still have deep, dark consequences for his family and for the Israelite history. But from now on, God will truly be his God. And God will keep his promises. While he's in Haran, it says, Jacob became exceedingly prosperous. He had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Just as the Israelites would spoil the Egyptians when they left, when Jacob leaves Laban, he takes half of his goods. God blesses him, he prospers him through that mysterious way in which the animals reproduce as they're tied to various stakes. He ends up with basically all of Laban's herd, and he gets out of town. God blesses Jacob with the spoils of the ungodly, of Laban. After two decades away from the land, he will have another dream. Genesis 31, turn there for a moment. This place is a very significant place in Jacob's life and Israelite history. After 20 years away from home, and there's actually no record that Jacob ever sees his mother again. She disappears. When she said, let the curse come upon me, that's the last we hear from her. We don't know what happened to her. 
In Genesis 31, 13, he has another dream. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. I am the God of Bethel. Return to the land of your family. So Jacob obeys God again. and He returns, heads back. Although he's not sure that Esau is at peace with him. He's not sure if his brother has mended offenses, if he's forgiven him for the sinfulness of his past. But this time, Jacob goes back a different man. Look at Jacob's faith in Genesis 32.9 as he prepares to meet Esau. Genesis 32.9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. If anybody knew that they weren't worthy, it was Jacob. I'm not worthy. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob claims God's promises. And he argues them back to God in prayer. He said, God, please protect me because you said you would. Jacob is now a man of faith. He said, you, will, you said, I will surely treat you well. So Lord, please do that. Please treat me well. Please keep me safe from my brother. And God honors that request. And Jacob and Esau, as best as can be, they mend their, their fences are mended. Esau is forgiven. And they're able to welcome each other. And eventually they'll bury their father together. In Genesis 35, verse 1, Jacob is now, by now, he's returned to the land. He's in Shechem. He stops in Shechem for a while. But in 35, 1, God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So we've come full circle as Jacob then takes his family to Bethel, and he makes an altar there. It's perhaps 30 30 years have now gone by since Jacob the runner is now Jacob the returner, the one who's been returned to bless. When he returns to Bethel, he sets up an actual permanent altar. He pours a drink offering and oil on it, and he calls it again Bethel, the house of God. Well, that's an interesting story, and we see in that the mercy, the faithfulness, the pursuit of God going after the sinner. Even before Jesus came to earth, Even before he was incarnated, this was the mission. God was out seeking after the lost. How many times had Jacob hardened his heart towards God? How many times had he heard the teaching of his father Isaac and he not repented? But light and life come to Jacob. So we should reconsider and realize that God is a great initiator. He's working out his purposes. Jacob had used and abused his privileges in the covenant family. He was going to get the blessing, but he achieved it in the wrong way. He was not patient to wait for God's timing. And he cared little for God or for God's ways. He wanted the blessing, but he didn't want the God of the blessing. He wanted the blessing. He wanted to give me the kids, give me the family, give me the property, give me the land. I don't need you. I just want all the good stuff. But after Bethel, Jacob has a change of heart. If you think about it, this is the prodigal son story of the Old Testament. 
Esau is the older brother working for the father, but without a heart for the father. Jacob is the prodigal son on the run. In both situations, the older brother doesn't come to faith, but the younger brother does. And in neither situation does the younger brother deserve it any more than the older brother. It's all of God's choosing, all of God's mercy. God didn't choose Esau to save him. Why did he choose Jacob? Jacob was certainly no better than Esau. Why are you here? Why are we sitting here? We understand that God's sovereignty, we understand God's purposes and election, as, as Paul will make abundantly clear in Romans chapter 9, but it has nothing to do with us. Sometimes the longer we live as Christians, the more we look at our better track record than the world around us, and we can start to think that God knew what kind of a guy I'd turn out to be, and that's why he saved me. That's not at all the case. And he allows us to sin quite frequently to remind us ourselves of the fact that we are not all that we are cut out to be. But why does he save Jacob? Because he's a God of mercy. Because he has chosen us in Christ. There is no, there is no earthly reason we can say why God would choose Jacob and not Esau. Why God would choose either one. But he did. Because he is a God of compassion. And God often sends blessings when we know we least deserve them. Lest we think we somehow have earned them. You know, Satan would often have us doubt God's goodness. Satan is an accuser. Satan would have us fear God as an avenger. We know that God is a judge, and we should fear God's judgment and his wrath. But Satan would have us minimize the compassion part of God. Satan, as is so often the case, when we're tempted to go to sin, Satan will say, you'll hear that voice that says, it's okay, it's not a big deal. Just a little thing. And so we sin. And then after we sin, the thought comes, you're such a rotten person. How could you do that? How could you be a sinner? How could you be a Christian and call yourself a Christian and do something like that? Yeah. Instantly, it turns from, it's not a big deal, to as soon as you commit it to say, you're so rotten. You, you have no hope of forgiveness. You couldn't possibly be a Christian and do that. But God is a God of compassion. God does often give a second chance. And it is not for us to presume on his mercy. Paul will say in Romans 2, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We risk reaching that point of no return if we continue to harden our hearts against the truth. But God often does give second chances and third and fourth. If you've grown up in a Christian home, if you're in a Christian home, or if you're not, if you've heard the gospel, if you're living a way that is not consistent with the new covenant that you were surrounded by. There is still hope. You're alive. You're still breathing air. There is still hope. God is a God of compassion. Sin is sin no matter what form it's in. But I would venture to guess that none of you has done the kind of things that Jacob did to his father. But even if you have, here's a clear example that you're not beyond salvation. You're not beyond saving. Jacob found that out. So as we close our time this morning, as we reflect on God's goodness, I trust that the glory will go to him. Our pastor once said, asked the question, why are you saved and your family member or your neighbor is not? Is it because you're smarter? I, I, was, I figured out the gospel and I, I made sense because it was a good decision. Is it because you're better? It's not. It's because God opened your eyes to see things that you didn't see before. 
And in that, that alone, there is mercy. Jesus made reference to this in John chapter 1. As he's gathering his disciples there at the beginning of his ministry, he refers to this passage. And Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It sounds suspiciously like Jacob, but not true of Jacob. Jacob was an Israelite full of deceit. Here's Nathanael full of no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And there Christ says that that image that Jacob got back in Genesis, that was all about me. That was, that was all about me. I am the, I am the, the bridge that, that spans heaven and earth. It is through me and through me alone that God and man can have fellowship together. So as we close this morning, I trust that our view of God's mercy will increase just a little bit. You should be encouraged to go back and read some of these stories that you think you know, that I thought I knew. Try to read them with fresh eyes. Understand the corruption that's hidden, kind of just below the surface, that you may miss. But also the great mercy that's there, spilled all over the pages of Scripture. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning again. Thank you for the depth of your word. There's never, we never exhaust it. As one old writer said, there's neither brim nor bottom to the riches that we find in you. Thank you for the freshness of your word. Thank you. Jacob lived thousands of years ago, but it sounds like it just happened yesterday. People's hearts did not change. We are the same sinners in need of your grace that Jacob was. We are so thankful that for most of us, for many of us, you have called us to yourself. I pray that it would would bring us humility, that we would say we are not worthy of the least of these your mercies. And that whatever theological understanding we gain, whatever knowledge we have of you, that it would not make us proud or boastful or or look down on other Christians with a, a less clear understanding of theological truths, but it would humble us and make us so grateful that we have the eyes to see. That it would give us compassion for the lost around us and for believers around us who are just fumbling, fumbling their way through a very confusing time in society. I pray that we might have the opportunity to humbly and gently and lovingly show others the way of God more perfectly. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.